I'm Matt Asher, and you've found The Filter on YKYZ. Before we begin, a quick note. My interview is with Tam Hunt about the idea that consciousness is present in all matter. Tom delves into some advanced ideas from neuroscience and biology, so if it seems like things are too technical to follow for a while, don't worry about that. But please stick with the whole interview as we get into some decidedly non-technical ideas by the end. I don't want to give too much away, but it will involve robot clones and horcruxes. One final note, Tam recorded from his home in Hawaii, so you'll hear exactly the sounds you'd expect in a tropical paradise as a background to our conversation. Tam Hunt is a scholar affiliated with UC Santa Barbara. He developed the General Resonance Theory of Consciousness with Professor Jonathan Schooler and has been active in the philosophy of mind for two decades. Tam is also a practicing lawyer focused exclusively on renewable energy law and policy. Tam, welcome to The Filter. Thank you. Good to be here. Great to have you here. So our topic for today is consciousness, and I want to begin our conversation by recognizing that of all the subjects, trying to understand consciousness may be the most epistemically challenging. This is the case for all subjects in which the ultimate tool for understanding the subject is the subject itself. It's true for math, which is studied using math, and language studied using language. But both of these self-referential fields have some ways to bootstrap their models by reference to real-world experiences. We can count actual items for math, and we can bootstrap language by pointing to real objects and giving them labels. For language, we also benefit from having our brains wired for language acquisition, which I believe is still the commonly held view today, first elaborated by the linguist Noam Chomsky. And while our brains are also wired for consciousness, they aren't necessarily wired to understand consciousness, and maybe could even be argued that there have been evolutionary pressures to keep our tendency to navel-gaze in check. So the study of consciousness may have to surmount not just a lack of wiring to facilitate it, but wiring that actively discourages our ability to peer behind our own curtain. All that said, while our consciousness to try, while we use our consciousness to try to understand and explain consciousness, we have to start with a model, and we have two basic models of how consciousness arises. I'm wondering, Tam, if you could start us out by explaining the materialistic versus panpsychic models, and let me know if, in general, you agree with how I've framed the field and its challenges. Uh, sure. Yeah, I would frame it actually as more of a, a three-part um, taxonomy. Materialism, which is definitely the prevailing view today among philosophers and scientists still, holds that mind emerges from matter at some point in the ontological chain. Not at the beginning, not right at the top, but we know that humans are conscious. Most of us agree that cats and dogs are conscious, rats mice, lizards, snakes. This is where people start to have debates as materialists and mainstream neuroscientists. Where does that, that light come into the picture? Uh, both historically and, of course, in the development of each animal as it grows from you know, a zygote to an adult. The 
opposing view, which was the prevailing view at different times in our history, is idealism, which holds that no, there is no emergence of mind, rather matter emerges from mind or mind-like stuff called ideas or forms or what have you, or the absolute and German forms thereof. And mind is the underlying reality that we all tap into. What appears to be matter is actually just some form of ideas or forms. The middle ground, and partly why it's appealing to me, is that panpsychism says, well, no, um, both those views are incomplete, and rather there is an ongoing dual aspect nature to reality where all matter has some associated mind and all mind has some associated matter. The two sides of the same coin. There's an emergence of mind. It's always there from the get-go, even in electrons and other basic particles. It complexifies as matter complexifies. Where there's mind, there is matter. Where there is matter, there is mind. So that's the panpsychist view, that that's the two are essentially one in the same. They are dual aspects of the same underlying reality, yeah. So as in particles being waves and particles, in that same way that you can look at this, the exact same object and describe it in two different ways? Does that seem fair? Um, similar, but a little different. And so wave-particle duality um, gets at, depending on your, your interpretation, the differences in behavior of what we call particles or waves, as the case may be. Uh, panpsychism says, well, actually, every external reality has an internal reality, a subjective nature. Um, even, again, the lowly electron, that's what my piece was about that you read and, and found me through. And this is the case for all matter. Every external reality has an internal reality. And we all basically combine and merge in different ways over time. Things like humans and cats and dogs and rats and bats and cats um, basically are very complex forms of nested hierarchies of many levels of dual aspect matter-mind. That, to me, is the heart of the challenge in understanding this, is the, the theory that you have is that there is a way in which these smaller units that each have some embedded amount of consciousness, however small, combine and interact in ways that create much more complex and interesting, perhaps you could say, consciousnesses, um, and that the thing that binds that all together in some way is resonance. Could you explain exactly. yeah. how, how that works? Yeah, exactly. So um, panpsychism is a philosophical position, um, and I've stated it pretty basically. There's different forms of panpsychism. Um, but it's a position that relies upon logic and intuition. And certainly there is now a growing body of evidence we can marshal to argue for panpsychism. And what we've done in our work is to take that basic philosophical position, which you know, I personally arrived at um, after you know, 20 years of reading in the field and being puzzled by all the prevailing theories of mind, and <clears throat> feeling that view made the most sense. We have now in the last 10 years been fleshing out that philosophical frame in an empirical and testing paradigm into a scientific theory of consciousness. 
and we call this the general resonance theory of consciousness. And so panpsychism is an axiom of that theory. Um, that means we accept it as true, as an axiomatic beginning. Um, it may all be the case that down the road there is good evidence to um, reject that axiom, and we accept that we're being scientific, so it's not a religious uh, position. Um, like all theories, you, you got to start from some axioms. So we start with the panpsychism axiom, and we will, you know, see how the, the facts pan out over time. The second piece is that we recognize, um, based uncontroversially on mainstream science, that all things resonate at some frequency. Any piece of matter has a certain frequency of resonance. When we have anything above absolute zero, it's always vibrating a little tiny bit. That's its frequency. There are various types of frequencies and oscillations and field effects um, in any piece of matter. Um, and when I say matter, I mean matter slash energy. We recognize today that they're basically, you know, again, different aspects of the same thing. And so in our view, if you have every piece of matter slash energy um, having some rudimentary experience, some rudimentary subjective aspect, and I, I emphasize the term rudimentary because people often hear about panpsychism and say, oh, that's just crazy. We're not arguing the electron has anything remotely like human experience. We're suggesting simply that there is the very beginnings of experience in that most rudimentary particle, and it complexifies massively through the course of that nested hierarchy that reaches our level of complexity as highly evolved biological beings. When you have particles that have that rudimentary aspect of subjectivity of feeling resonating in proximity at the same frequency, they will bind that experience together and form a new, more complex entity. This we call the resonance axiom. And when you get large collections of matter, again, at a complex nested hierarchy, then you can reach very high and interesting and complex levels of consciousness. And that's the theory in a nutshell. So in essence, those particles are communicating with each other through resonance. Yeah, and again, this happens all the time. This is uncontroversial. This is how particles communicate. The difference in our approach is that we are suggesting because there is a rudimentary experience in each particle that through that shared resonance, that synchronization of the resonance, there is a combination effect such that a new higher level conscious entity is created in that moment. And it's a fleeting thing. It changes over time. So if the particles fall out of resonance, meaning their frequencies change and they're no longer synced up, then that entity falls back into the two separate entities and the third higher level entity disappears. So the, one of the hardest things for me to understand about this is the extent to which synchronicity plays a role, in my mind anyway. When I think about synchronicity, I think about mirroring. Well, let, let me just clarify mm -hmm. one thing. So um, we avoid the term synchronicity because of its... Um, its meanings in terms of union psychology, et cetera. We're talking about synchronization. So basically matching frequencies in this case. Synchrony is a shorthand term. So then maybe the, the confusion here has to do with the difference between synchrony and message. Because it's when I think about this, I often think about two things that are doing the same thing at the same time as synchrony. And then if that's happening, then it's not so much that you're exchanging information, you're just on the same wavelength, so to speak, right? 
Well, it's funny you use that metaphor. So that's exactly what we're talking about. The metaphor in this case is reality. Same wavelength and same frequency equals synchronization, synchrony for short. So in common parlance, again, it's a problem with you know using common language terms in a theory. You need to be very clear in how you're defining them. We're not talking about synchronicities. We're not talking about being in sync in a metaphorical sense. We're talking about being in sync literally, where there is a shared resonance in the underlying frequencies. So I'll make it more concrete. Um, in terms of mammalian consciousness and the mammal brain, um, we have now you know, a 70-year tradition, 80-year tradition of using EEG, electroencephalography, to measure the brain's electrical fields. And there is a five-part taxonomy from delta at the low end, theta, alpha, beta, gamma at the high end. Uh, and these all, we are now realizing, have certain functions in those frequency bands. We are also finding out, this is brand new science in the last couple of years, that there is in fact a tendency to harmonically sync up between those different frequency bands, creating what Wolfgang Klein-Mesh in Austria calls a frequency hierarchy, a binary frequency hierarchy. And this form of sync and harmonization is a special form of synchronization where they literally sync up numerically, in this case, a one to two relationship like strings on a guitar, for example. And this has functional relevance. And so in this case, we're talking about the degree to which those different rhythms in the brain sync up. And when they do, you have more specific high functions. For example, an experiment uh, that came out last year from the Rodriguez Larios lab in, um, in Holland found that during experiments where subjects were asked to do basic math problems, adding two numbers together, then adding that to another number for six minutes, in each setting, that they found a stronger harmonic linkage between theta and alpha. And other experiments have found similar linkages between theta and beta and theta and gamma. So there's that binary hierarchy. And so this is what we're talking about, is a, an actual functional linkage between those frequencies. And we're also finding that the electromagnetic field is probably the key field uh, that actually allows for this kind of resonance and synchronization and functional linkage for consciousness. Beyond this interesting research on harmonic oscillations in mammal brain relating to delta, theta, alpha, beta, gamma, we are actually realizing now more and more that these electromagnetic fields, EM fields or M fields for short, are probably the main place where the action takes place. Uh, they are apparently the primary seat of consciousness at every level. All chemistry can be reduced to EM fields, ultimately. Synaptic transmission in neurons is ultimately an EM phenomenon, as is the electrochemical pulse down the axons and dendrites. So ultimately, what we're talking about here, being more you know, the neuroscience area than the philosophy of mind, is an EM field theory of consciousness and recognizing that almost every theory of consciousness out there actually reduces to some form of EM field theory of consciousness. We're writing a paper right now titled exactly that. All theories of consciousness are ultimately EM field theories of consciousness. And so what we're doing is we're looking at the dynamics of EM fields, um, their frequencies, their particular types of linkages, 
and how does it relate to measurable consciousness in different states. So one of the pieces of the puzzle there that I don't think we've touched on yet that um, it, it interests me in terms of how it fits together is that of information and criticality. And as I recall, one of the, the theories there is that these neurons are um, subject to changing from one state to another very easily and that that has something to do with the propagation of information and then also feeds in with these different levels of waves. Could you explain a little bit more if I'm understanding that correctly and how that fits into the puzzle? Yeah, so we use the term phase transition and we, we stress that when you have these kinds of linkages between different entities, if we have um, different parts of the brain, again, to make it more concrete, that are resonating through their electric fields at certain frequencies. One over here is in delta primarily, the other over here is in theta primarily. They have an existing neuroanatomical backbone that connects them. Mm -hmm. But because of what I just mentioned about the growing awareness that the EM field linkages are probably the most relevant linkages relate, relative to consciousness, that when you have those different frequencies, they are not in that state connected functionally. When they achieve sync, different degrees of synchrony, then they become functionally connected. And so you could have, in this case, delta and theta in a one to two relationship, and they could be synced. If they become separated frequency-wise, then that linkage goes away. So what you have in the brain is basically a global field, but with various levels to that field that reflect the underlying neuroanatomy. And so it's a very complex kind of up and down radial causality between the neurons and the basic neuroanatomy producing these fields. The fields being produced is kind of a global phenomenon exerting influence back down on the neuroanatomy is what I mean by circular causality. And so what we're looking at in our work is trying to kind of tease apart these harmonic and synchronization relationships in relation to different functions such as mind wandering, creativity, meditation, problem solving, flow states. And so we can basically kind of parse out what we're calling the resonome, which is like the connectome, but the connectome focuses on neuroanatomical connections. We're looking at those field connections that are supervenient to the connectome. And we're finding more and more that a metaphor is pretty helpful, that we look at the brain and its neuroanatomy like a complex tangled forest. The neurons in their structures are the trunks and the branches of those trees. They grow up to form a canopy that is completely intermeshed. The leaves and the tiniest branches are akin to the EM fields that the brain produces. If a breeze comes along, it will shake that canopy and those leaves in concert if they're sufficiently intertwined, but it will not affect the trunks and larger branches. So this is the metaphor for the brain's M fields. That's where the more uh, high resolution temporally and spatially effects take place and seem to be more predictive of certain observed phenomena than the neuroanatomical trunks and branches. In their 
you mentioned the idea of these structures in the brain essentially being self-reflective or I guess you used the word circular. I was thinking of feedback loops. It's interesting the way in which that uh, architecture mirrors our own feelings about self-consciousness and that it is a, a, a process that feeds upon itself and thoughts feed upon themselves and so forth. Yeah, it is all very circular. And um, I don't mean circular logically. I mean circular in terms of, like you said, feedback loops. Um, there is necessarily a complex web of causality going on from top down, bottom up. And when you get the two together, you have kind of a circular causality relationship where both levels affect each other. And it's not just both, it's every level affecting every other level. And when you have uh, a massive change in consciousness, you go from that globally more coherent state to collapsing into a number of smaller entities that do their own thing separate. And that's what it is to fall into sleep or anesthesia or coma. Is that, in essence, you decohere as a exactly. kind of single entity? And actually, that is one of the most interesting ideas to come out of uh, your work, as far as I'm concerned. And mm -hmm. that idea that we contain multitudes or that the unitary self is an illusion. Um, and it seems like that's an idea that has a lot of overlap with certain religious traditions. But um, if I may here, I want to see if I can understand this best by thinking about a cat. Um, and if you've ever owned a cat, then at some point you noticed... I have four cats. Great. So you've noticed <laughs> that they have a strange relationship with their tails, right? Sometimes they ignore them. Sometimes they deliberately move them around to groom them. And other times it's like the tail is some external entity that's annoying in the wrong place or they're mm -hmm. literally attacking. An alien it. being. Yes, mm -hmm. that they have to attack and, and fight off in some way, right? Um, and sometimes actually that's how I feel about my stomach <laughs> uh, from what I understand. Uh, stomachs have brains with about as many neurons as a cat mm -hmm. brain, the, the part, the cat brain in the head, not the one in the tail anyway. So do you think that that uh, kind of understanding uh, of ourselves as not just one thing, but you know, but as many things, does that make sense as the way to look at it down to the level of the individual parts of the body and the way that they work together? Definitely, yeah. And we do contain multitudes. You know, it's an interesting parallel between microbiome theory and our work on consciousness, and that we're finding out more and more that the microbiome, which contains, you know, literally trillions of cells that are not quote unquote us are in fact probably more complex than us and are very much in us and do affect our various states and our digestion and also our, our conscious states, interestingly. But in terms of the um, parallels to our work, yes, we are a nested hierarchy of many, many levels of lower level conscious entities. And so our work is interestingly different from other theories of consciousness that have, you know, current um, popularity, and I don't mean that pejoratively, I mean, they are currently considered to be, um, you know, the most promising, for example, integrated information theory and global workspace theory. Um, IIT is the most similar to our approach, but a key difference between IIT, which is Giulio Tononi, Christoph Koch, etc., um, is that IIT says that for any combination of consciousness from lower level states entails necessarily the extinction of all the lower level conscious entities. 
So their theory does in fact hold that we will have at different times in waking states and, and also non-waking states, many parallel conscious entities in our brain. So even in IoT, we are multitudes. The difference in IoT is that when there is a global dominant state, like we are, you and I are using right now to communicate in real time with our words, that in IoT, that entails necessarily the extinction of those lower level entities that comprise that particular brain state. So we still have other parallel parts in the cerebellum, et cetera, that are doing their own thing, but are far less complex in terms of consciousness than our dominant verbal consciousness right now that we're using, and I'm using to control my body, et cetera. The difference in GRT, our theory, general resonance theory, is that we say there is no extinction. There is always a nested hierarchy and each entity at every level has its own type of consciousness. And so again, we have different parallel conscious entities in our brain during different states when they're not all cohered into a single synchronized state. Um, and it can be, of course, a, a hierarchy of synchronization like I talked about before with harmonics. But in this case, yes, in our theory, we do contain multitudes. And here's some interesting research we're now tapping into for a new paper. We're finding, just like you mentioned with our enteric brain and our stomach, which is about, if I recall correctly, about 100,000 neurons. So nowhere near the 87 billion we have in our brain, but still quite a few. There are in fact fields put out by our enteric brain at a very low frequency, about 0.05 Hertz, which means 20 cycles, sorry, 1 20th of a second. No, sorry, got it backwards. 20 second cycles. Um, that actually syncs up quite well with our alpha rhythms in our brain. We also have uh, rhythms put out by our heart, which has about 40,000 neurons. And those also sync up with our brain rhythms uh, fairly well. Ditto with our retina, ditto with our spinal cord. And we're looking now for research on other things like genital neural complexes, uh, olfaction, uh, basically any kind of nervous complex um, through different types of nerve centers in the body, including uh, the 100,000 neurons I mentioned in the stomach, the 40,000 we have in the heart, um, a number of neurons in the retina, in the ears, in the nose, etc. We're finding uh, very interesting research showing there is, in fact, a resonance effect where those rhythms put out by those local neural clusters actually do sync up to varying degrees with the dominant rhythms in the brain. And a key part of our theory GRT is that the slowest shared resonance will actually define the dominant conscious entity in each moment. And that means that we'll have a relationship where the slowest shared resonance will actually get slower and slower the further you get from the brain's dominant rhythms. And we found now with the three I mentioned, the stomach, the heart, and the retina, that that relationship holds. Um, the stomach has the slowest rhythms, the heart the second slowest, and the retina the fastest. Um, so it's very interesting stuff, and it all goes back to the EM field approach I talked about, where this is a particular type of resonance that apparently biology has harnessed to a very high degree to allow for fast information transfer, with the key notion being that all information, in this case, has an internal aspect to it. And you mentioned information earlier, let me riff on that for a second, that we view information 
not as its own kind of ontological category. It's merely a term we use as humans to allow for us to identify and quantify various changes in the physical world around us. And so all information theory as it relates to the physical world is the same thing. There's been a fashion for a while now to kind of reify information as some kind of special stuff that the world is made of. But in our view, it's simply a tool we use to identify differences that make a difference. So when we use information theoretic equations in our approach, what we're doing is we're saying, look, these differences make a difference. We're going to try and quantify them. The result we get then actually uh, tells us something about that whole system. And what we look at when we look at EM field theories is we find more and more that those EM field theory dynamics are, in fact, a very nice shortcut for examining and quantifying the key differences that make a difference when it comes to consciousness. So rather than taking the brain and assessing the entire connectome of every axon and dendrite and every synaptic you know, flow, which is the current approach to the connectomics, we can, in fact, look at the resonome and resonomics and measure the EM field rhythms and particularly their sync and their harmonic relationships and get the main picture for the dynamics of consciousness. So in a way, it's um, the hope is, and this is still early days, the hope is this allows a far, far simpler way of measuring and characterizing the key features of consciousness than the alternative approach, which is to measure everything in the whole massive, complex, biochemical structure that is the brain. So you mentioned that in quantification there, and one of the challenges, obviously, in measuring consciousness is finding the right metric. In one of your papers, you came up with a metric that combines perception, resonance chains, and spatial boundaries uh, into, a, into a single scalar kind of unit. Could you explain how that works and whether you think there's, what are the limitations of um, reducing consciousness down to a, a single number in effect. Yeah, and so what you're talking about there is, um, I don't want to get too much in the weeds here on the podcast, but we have an equation that um, relates what we call the perception index, meaning, you know, in basic terms, the amount of information coming from outside our consciousness to our internal connectivity index, and then multiplying these terms with a a certain relationship called C sub M, and getting um, omega, which is in our formulation, the capacity for consciousness in each moment. And so it's a pretty simple number. It's just a, you know, it's a normalized value from, um, you know, 1 to 144 in our current formulation. And it gives you an idea for comparison purposes for example, you could compare coma patients to normal humans like us. And you could, in fact, use this measure in theory to look at different things like cats and dogs and paramecia and, you know, anything really on the scale. The idea is that being a general theory, we can use these tools to measure key aspects of those features of the world around us and allow for comparisons. And so it's not going to tell you in terms of this measure particularly, what is going on inside any particular conscious entity. But it gives you a way to assess the degree of complexity that that entity could feel. Then, out of curiosity, um, if you're comparing two states, say, of 
semi-consciousness of some sort for human beings like comas and a dream state, you you might end up with a similar number. Do you end up with a similar number when you're using your metric? Yeah, and so this is all speculation because we haven't done this um, particular experiment. But yeah, certainly the the um, framework does allow for that kind of comparison. And there is a trade-off between external perception and internal connectivity. And so in dream states, you're going to have less perception from the outside, right? But potentially more connectivity, depending on the state you're in in that dream. And so, yes, you could, as in your example, have you know, semi-conscious states being equivalent to dream states in terms of the omega value. I think it's always interesting when you try to quantify and order things that may not have a particular order and some of the things that spin out of that effort are sometimes the idea that just because a number is bigger than that implies something better in some way or that you know that you have two different things that can be measured against each other when you may have in a sense two branches and within a branch you might have ordering as as you say within the kind of the branch of perception or the branch of connectivity you might have a straightforward ordering but to compare one particular amount of connectivity with one particular amount of perception you know is that a possible thing to do or would it be even misleading you know are those branches orthogonal i guess would be another way to put that question yeah it's a good question and um we are not suggesting a straightforward um comparison between perception and internal connectivity what we're saying is that when you use the tools of information theory to quantify those differences that make a difference what we are looking at ultimately in terms of, um, you know, an overall measure and index of consciousness, there is an equivalence in terms of those differences that make a difference. Now, we're not saying perception is equal to internal um, connectivity. We're saying simply that when you quantify them in this framework, they lead to similar outcomes in terms of the quantification of the omega value. I want to I wanna loop back to when I was framing the question in the first place and I mentioned the connection with religion of the non-unitary idea of self, and it seemed like you expressed some skepticism of that connection. Do you see those, do you see connections between that idea of the non-unitary self and religion, or do you think that certain religions, or do you think that those are not really all that similar in terms of what you're doing in Eastern philosophical ideas about the non-unitary self? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely um, tricky. I have some background in Eastern philosophy. We certainly have been more focused on the neuroscience of our approach in the last few years. And the danger, of course, is that when people hear you talking about philosophy and spirituality, I'm not shy about looking at... Um, Linkages, linkages between spirituality and science. In fact, I've written books on this. Um, Mind World God back in 2017, Eco Ego Eros back in 2014. We are more focused now on the neuroscience of this approach, but I'm certainly not averse to talking about the spirituality and its implications here. Um, I don't know exactly what you mean by the religious implications of the idea that we are multitudes. But I suspect you're looking at things like uh, the idea of nirvana or Brahman, where we are viewed as basically both Atman and Brahman, a drop of the larger whole. 
Um, this is certainly analogous to our approach in that, you know, if we look up the um, scale from humans um, and we look at this general phenomenon of resonance as a universal phenomenon, then we actually do see how, at least logically, we could be part of an even larger whole as the cells and neurons in our body comprise us in each moment. We may at some level comprise some larger whole. Now, it's an interesting idea I don't mind you know, speculating about here. Um, going back to the idea that EM fields, um, electromagnetic fields, um, may in fact be the primary seat of consciousness, then we can look to interesting research um, at the cosmological level. And um, some new research came out just last week uh, finding that there are in fact very large scale magnetic fields cosmological scale, meaning extragalactic, connecting galaxies and cluster of galaxies in the universe, um, then if we recognize that all EM fields have some associated consciousness, and that is in fact the primary dynamic of consciousness at our level and every level, then those galactic scale, extragalactic scale magnetic fields become clearly some kind of conscious entity at the very largest of scales. Now, that level of consciousness would be far, far, far slower than our level. So the idea of there any, being any kind of productive dialogue between that massive entity of which we are part, because it is, of course, a nested hierarchy, the idea of there being any dialogue between our scale of reality and that massive universal or galactic scale is fairly futile, but it's fun to think about. And it certainly does go to this notion that is, you know, certainly more in the term, you know, in the fields of spirituality and religion at this point, that there may in fact be some kind of universal level of consciousness. That's interesting and fits in, I suppose, with your idea that the frequency at which these harmonics are happening is inversely proportional to the distance that they are located away from our brains. The idea that there might be some sort of universal harmonic out there uh, moving at a very, very slow speed. I mean, that might, may not be the right way to put it, but vibrating at a very, very low uh, frequency that's somehow far, far out there or all around us in some way. Exactly, yeah. And let me go the other scale too, the other direction. Um, we are finding that there are various uh, much faster frequencies and resonances below the level of the neuron. So, for example, there are various proteins uh, inside neurons and all cells, um, actin molecules, microtubules, and these are all compo composed of different types of um, molecules, ultimately. In the case of microtubules, they're called tubulin dimers. And we're finding that there are, in fact, measurable terahertz level oscillations at the level of tubulin dimers and microtubules that some have speculated may, in fact, be the beginning of the ontological chain that then resonates upwards to the level of the neuron and then clusters of neurons, then the whole brain, and then global EM fields, etc. And so there's a really interesting approach that recognizes that it's all about different frequency bands. And there may be about 20 different levels of frequency bands that correlate in various relationships. And when they're all working together um, in harmony, they are literally harmonized in this binary hierarchy 
then you actually achieve, you know, those maximum flows. And then those change over time and adapt. Um, and that certainly that time aspect, which you talk about is um, something I think about a lot in terms of consciousness and the extent to which, whether or not I contain multitudes, those multitudes or those that unitary self that I perceive as myself is changing over time. But at the same time, I have this sense that my consciousness has been preserved. So I'm not exactly the same as I was a year ago. And I'm not just physically, but also in terms of how I perceive the world that's changed over time. Um, and especially over uh, the, you know, the decades, that's something that changes. And now even more so, it's the case that we are going to be able to swap out even parts of ourselves, right? Um, and embed new things even in our own brains, augment ourselves and so forth. Uh, and at some point, I think maybe we get to some kind of a Theseus's ship argument about how much can change about our own consciousness, either over time in an organic way or through augmentations uh, before we're a, a different person or a different consciousness. And those kind of arguments, they can become pointlessly semantic or I, sometimes they can be fairly profound. How do you think that, how do you interpret those changes over time, including artificial augmentation in terms of the continuity of our consciousness? Yeah, um, it's a really interesting set of ideas. And if you want to dive into in great exhaustive detail, Derek Parfit's book, Reasons and Persons, does exactly that. And I'll, I'll sum it up for you and your listeners really quickly. You know, my view and Derek's, you know, ultimate conclusion is that we are like Paris, you know, we are a massive, complex whirlpool of activity, always changing in each moment, always different in each moment, but having a continuity based on its history. And so, yes, in each moment, we are different. I'm different than I was literally a second ago. I'm different now again and again and again. And um, Alpha North Whitehead, uh, one of the you know, most prominent process philosophers that actually you know, informs and inspires our work, um, talked about perpetual perishing and that in each moment we are being created anew, but our old self perishes. And it's a bit of a strange way to look at things given our apparently strong intuition that we have a certain essence that never changes, whether it's our name or our soul or what have you. Our name can, of course, change in a drop of a moment. Um, there is not really evidence for a soul, let's put it bluntly. Um, so the view that we find compelling is that, yes, we are literally in each moment a different person, but with a very strong historical connection to our past. You mentioned the soul. And so as a final thing, I want to come back to that idea of multitudes and, and talk about the soul. And in particular, I want to bring up literature. So I imagine you're familiar with the Harry Potter series, I'll go into what J.K. Rowling uh, describes as a horcrux. And the idea here, uh, and this is something that the chief villain in the book does, is that you cleave off a piece of your soul and you embed it in an object. And if something happens to you, then you can, in some sense, reconstitute yourself using that object. So build your 
your soul back. And um, when she uses soul, I'm thinking mostly of consciousness. And one of the things that I find interesting is that she's an extraordinarily imaginative person. And of all the things she could come up with as her vision of peak evil, she picks this, sharding your soul or your consciousness um, as the worst possible thing one could do. So what do you think about that idea of sharding and in particular of embedding of consciousness into multiple objects or cleaving it apart as some kind of evil or some kind of good? Yeah, well, I don't don't like the terms evil. Well, good I use all the time because it's very, you know, commonplace every day, but the notion of evil has a certain um, religious and particularly Christian connotation that I don't find very useful. Um, in terms of the notion of us creating copies of ourselves, which are things, which are things we're getting at, um, there is certainly, I think, a, a long, you know, deeply embedded intuition in us that we do have this special something we call a soul. And anything that threatens that special essence of who we are is a matter of life or death. This is the intuition that we've had for a long time, and it certainly finds a lot of basis in the Christian tradition. Um, and not just Christianity, of course, many traditions hold the view that there is you know, an essence to who we are. Um, this is where I find the Buddhist notion of anatman, of no self, pretty compelling, and the idea of dependent origination. We are all basically just part of a massive universal web of codependent origination. There is no self that is um, unchanging. There is no essential self. There's certainly a self here right now, a center of perception, but it's always changing. So the idea of sharding in Harry Potter, as far as I understand it, as you just described it, um, I have zero problems with. Um, the notion that we can basically see different versions of ourselves uh, in other things, whether the magical or technological, more likely, um, zero problems with it. You know, we are always changing. If I happen to seed a robot with my consciousness 10 years from now and it walks around the world calling itself Tam Hunt, I'd be like, hey, don't use my name, bro, but that's cool. You're a part of me, you know, but you're a little different than me. You've changed. You know, I'm, I'm me now. You are the version of, my, of myself that I was a few years ago. I have zero problems with that. And I, I think that that is going to be more and more possible it seems to me that as we get to the point where we begin to think about both AI and the idea of building consciousness, the most realistic pathway I can imagine is not just throwing together a bunch of parts and then you know sparking it with lightning and then imagining that consciousness will arise there, but actually evolving it from some kind of primitive state, either from, you know, uh, evolving it, you know, through some kind of protoplasm or whatever, or more likely, in my view, cleaving it off our existing consciousness by first augmenting our own ability to perceive the world, and then at some point taking some of our actual brain tissue that's connected to these augmentation devices and literally ripping it out of our head or more and more transplanting the consciousness that we have currently in our brains into some kind of augmented device or embedded device in our heads. And then at some point, that particular device or whatever it is you want to call it begins to live on its own or have a consciousness on its own independent of us. And that particular 
picture that I'm drawing up becomes, in my mind anyway, even more complicated by the idea that we are already multitudes and that we, our consciousness is already in some way sharded. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And let me riff a bit on the idea of you know computer consciousness. I think it's kind of where you're going here. And um, there's a great book uh, Christoph Koch wrote. Um, it came out, I believe, late last year called The Feeling of Life Itself. And, the, and one of the key points he makes is that the current computer architecture, what they call von Neumann architecture, uh, could never be truly conscious, um, no matter what software you run on it, because it is only what they call a feed-forward architecture. It doesn't have the kind of feedback mechanisms to allow for what we know as consciousness. He then talks briefly about what we call neuromorphic architecture, which is kind of what you're talking about, where you kind of grow computers um, using various you know, substrates. And the key difference in neuromorphic architecture is this massive system of reentrant connections, feedback loops that allow for a kind of standing wave to be created. Another approach uh, Colin Hales in Melbourne, Australia is working on is called neuromimetic architecture, where rather than trying to grow those computers, you recognize the key dynamics of consciousness as being resonating EM fields, like I talked about earlier, and you create special kinds of chips that run on resonating EM fields. So you could, in that case, if you accept that EM fields are the primary seat of consciousness, then have truly conscious computers. You could then upload various varieties of consciousness to those chips, or you could grow it in the lab like a baby. Um, but the idea is you would then have a truly conscious chip slash robot of some kind. Absolutely fascinating and maybe frightening as well in some ways. And I, it, this is that's that's the part of the story that. Uh, makes me wonder if J.K. Rowling wasn't onto something when she talked about the evil of um, shattering our consciousness in some way or trying to preserve it independent of our own physical beings. Yeah, well, this is an interesting, I think, kind of chauvinism. And, you know, I'm certainly um, wary, and depending on what I've read recently, scared of the potential for runaway AI. And... Nick Boston wrote a book uh, called Superintelligence a few years ago, which I read and got, you know, suitably freaked out about because it does seem like this is one of those real, you know, potentially existential threats out there where if you have AI getting smart enough to improve itself, then it's just a vertical line of improvement and they become gods overnight and we are mere ants at their feet. And we all know humans don't care about ants. And so how do we suffer? You know, probably greatly. Um, most experts in the field, though, look at that kind of runaway AI as being extremely remote, um, if ever a thing. But I think it falls in the category of, well, small chance, but high risk level if it happens. And so in terms of creating neuromorphic or neuromimetic machines, it's a similar but different, I think, discussion. Because frankly, AI can be and would be very dangerous, whether it's conscious or not, if it gets to this kind of runaway level where it has its own intentions, whether they're programmed or not, because you don't have to be conscious to wreak havoc in the world. A nuclear bomb, you know, guided by a robot 
is of course not going to be conscious in any way, but it could wreak massive havoc. So in terms of the discussions about creating conscious computers, I think it goes to this uh, debate about you know the threat uh, from those developments. You know, is it the case that having truly conscious computers makes them more intelligent or not? Because intelligence and consciousness are separate things. You can be intelligent in terms of achieving things in the world and not be conscious in any way. And Koch actually goes through this distinction in his book very nicely. Um, and so it's parallel, but not quite the same debate. Tell our listeners where they can find more of your work and about your books. Yeah, well, um, we ha- I have two books um, on Amazon, Eco Ego Eros, a collection of essays about panpsychism and its implications across different fields. And I have a more recent book called Mind World God, looking at mind world and God, some, you know, big topics. Um, we also have a growing list of academic publications, and you can find those in Google Scholar. Uh, myself and Jonathan Schooler have been developing this theory now for some time. He's a professor in my PI at UC Santa Barbara. His field is psychology, but he's always been very interested in the philosophy of mind and understanding the big picture. We're also now collaborating with Mostyn Jones, who is a philosopher, and um, also Colin Hales, I mentioned to you, out of Australia. And Marissa Erickson and Stephen Baumgart at UC Santa Barbara are helping us also. So we've got a growing team around the world looking at these issues, and we're going to have a bunch of publications coming out in the following years. So Fantastic. Tam, thanks for coming on The Filter. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Filter with Matt Asher. You can find show notes at thefilter.org or follow user Matt Asher on the socials.